Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. I want to share with you just an incredible, incredible story in Scripture, John chapter 4, of an encounter that Jesus has with a woman at a well. And not just any woman. This is a woman of ill reputation, we find out. And uh, at first, she thinks they're having a conversation about drinking water. But instead, Jesus uses drinking water to have a conversation with her, to talk to her about eternal life. He calls it living waters, we're going to read. And it's a story, this is what's so neat about it, it's a story where through the life of one changed individual, an entire community gets changed. And New Iberia, you think that's possible? You think that's possible that through one changed life, an entire community can come to know Jesus? Answer? I think it it could. And and let me just tell you, I'm excited to show you this. And we're going to read the story, and I'm going to comment Uh, along the way. Let's turn to John chapter 4, verses 3, and we're going to be here uh, for for our entire time today. John chapter 4, verse 3, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. It's a region. It's not a city. It's a region. And he had to pass through another region called Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about Jewish history so you can understand the context here of of what's happening. About 700 years before then, the Assyrian nation came and conquered uh, Israel, and they took a large amount of people into captivity with them. And one of the ways that they would do that was they would break up a nation by intermingling that nation together. And these Sumerians, these, these people that we read about, are a mixed breed, if you will, of multiple races. The Jewish nation prided themselves on being all of one uh, ethnicity. They could trace their lineage back to Abraham and considered themselves Jews. If you couldn't do that, you weren't a Jew. And there was a group living among them that came back from captivity that were no longer just one single race. They were a blend of races. And these, these people were known as Samaritans or some, from Samaria. And they could no longer trace their lineage straight back. There was no 23andMe. There was no Ancestry.com. They, just, they, they knew what they knew, and they came back to that. And we saw, and you see throughout all of, of, of this history here, that racism even existed back then. Big time back then. These Samaritans, if you will, they had to have their own places to worship. They, they didn't have access to the same education and educational opportunities that the Jews had. They didn't even have access to all of the same scriptures, right? And then they had these, these tensions then that you see, these tensions that would, they would erupt from all of that racism, often erupted into violence. Jesus tells a parable of the good Samaritan. It was a Jew traveling down a road and he was jumped and attacked and stripped of his clothing and, and, and robbed and left there. And then a kind Samaritan came. That's the context of this area that happened here. Jews did not go near Samaritans and Samaritans did not go near Jews. I'll say it this way. You did not go on that side of town. You didn't do it. 
And to get from Judea, which is in the southern part, up to Galilee, which is in the northern part, right in between them was this area, Samaria. So when you read in scripture that Jesus went from Judea to Galilee, the straightest distance between two points is a straight line. That straight line is through Samaria. But here's what's crazy. Jews wouldn't go there. They wouldn't go through there. They would go out of their way. They would either travel all the way west to the coast and up and then all the way back over to Galilee or they would cross the Jordan River to the east, go way out of their way and then come all the way back over just to avoid this area. You know how crazy that is? That's akin to me saying, hey, we're here in New Iberia and we're gonna go to Opelousas, but we can't go through Lafayette. So we gotta drive all the way to Abbeville we're going to go up north into, uh, into Crowley and over to Eunice. And then from Eunice, we can get to Opelousas, but we're not going to go straight through Lafayette. We're going to go to St. Martinville, then go up through Bro Bridge, then to Arnaville, then to Sunset, then to Opelousas, but we're not going to go through Lafayette. The fact that Jesus went to Galilee through Samaria is a big deal People just normally would go way out of their way, but Jesus doesn't just go through Samaria, our story tells us. He goes to Samaria, very much on purpose. John chapter four, verse six, let's look at this. It was about the sixth hour, that's noon, the heat of the day, remember that. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And look in the parentheses there. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I didn't add that. Scripture adds that. This Jewish writer was writing this for the Gentile audience that would read it later to know there's a lot going on here between this scenario, what's happening. It's not common for somebody to go through this. No respected Jewish rabbi would be caught dead in Samaria, much less talking to a woman. Verse number 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You think Jesus was talking about water? No, he's not talking about water. He's talking about eternal life. She goes on, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Look what she says, though, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's think about this for a second. Here's what you need to understand. It was very common for the women in a community as part of their daily chores to leave and go to the one well with their large pots to draw water from the day. But they usually went early in the morning. And they would usually go together in large groups for safety and to help themselves. There was relationship there. Typically, this was a social event. They would help each other with the heavy task. Yet here we are, and we find this one woman all alone in the heat of the day, 
Not only had she gone when nobody else would be there, she left late enough so that she wouldn't even have to pass the other ladies along the road to get there. And you may wonder, man, what, what's going on? Isn't it funny how people will go to great lengths to avoid being reminded of the shame that they carry? They'll go to great lengths to have to avoid that. So when she says, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water, she might as well be saying, I'll do anything not to have to live like this anymore. You ever felt that way? Man, what could possibly be so wrong with this woman in the eyes of herself and her society that she would say something like that? And why her of all the people is Jesus having this conversation with Let's look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, hey, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, we don't know if she'd been sold. We don't know if she'd been abused, if she'd been prostituted. But we know this. This is not how she saw her life unfolding. No little girl sits up at night dreaming about their sixth wedding. Do they? No, not at all. Or about having to live as an outcast, surrounded by everyone who knows all about you, yet befriended by no one. And the amount of shame and the guilt that she was stuck with, that she was carrying. That water pot wasn't the only thing she was carrying that day, was it? No. How many conversations with strange men men do you think she's had? Probably many. How many times has a friendly conversation ended up with some man wanting something more from her? Have you thought about that? This man's different. It's as if he's not looking at her body. She'd be used to that, right? Here's a man who's looking deep into her soul, and this just got real uncomfortable for her. She thinks they're having a conversation about water. He's asking her about her husband and then now tells her everything she ever did. How would you respond in the middle of that? Here's how she responds. It's incredible. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What a religious response. What a religious response. How do you respond when someone asks you a question about your soul? Why is it when somebody gets personal with us, we try to hide behind religion? Oh, it happens more often than you think. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Praise God, brother. Jesus is on the throne and I'm, everything's fine in my life. How are you really doing? Oh, but that's uncomfortable. Don't ask me about my soul. Just, just ask me a greeting. How are you doing? Did you really mean, like, how are you doing? I was on the phone uh, talking with a friend I've known for years, and uh, she, she asked, and I think she was just trying to be courteous on the phone call. She said, she said, Pastor John, how are you doing? And I said, do you really want to know? Stop for a second. She says, well, yeah, yeah, I really, I really want to know. 
to be honest with you, I'm, I'm struggling right now. One of my kids did something and I just totally out of character for them. And I'm wondering if I exacerbated the situation by how I responded. And it's just, it's kind of occupying my time right now. I'm trying to make sure that I'm, I'm raising these kids correctly. And I think I'm doing an okay job, but I'm, I'm really not sure. But you probably didn't want to know all that, did you? When you just said, hey, how are you doing? Yet you come to a place like this, and this should be the place. Where when somebody says, hey, how are you doing? We can be the kind of people that say, man, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, yesterday was a struggle or the day before, but man, today was a great day. Or, or honestly, I'm struggling. Some of us have no idea how many people around us can relate to what we're walking through because we're hiding behind our religion when somebody says, hey, how are you doing? I mean, when was the last time somebody said, hey, how are you? And you were honest with them and they looked at you and they said, me too. Do you know how encouraging it is when somebody looks at you and says, me too? Man. And yet here we have this woman. Jesus is having a conversation. He's trying to get underneath it. He's trying to get to the heart of the matter and says, hey, how are you? She says, oh, my people worship over here and, and you worship over here. And, and, and she's getting religious in the middle of this, Jesus is addressing the very shame in her life that is driving her behavior, and she tries to change the subject from her to the religious differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. Verse 21, Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, oh, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who is called Christ, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus finally gets as clear as he could possibly get in this moment. And here's what he said. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. You're so worried about me not knowing what's going on in your life that you want to take me off in this tangent of a religious worship conversation and I am the very one that you need to help you in your life. Isn't it interesting though that both races, the Samaritans and the Jews, were looking for the same savior? Both races were looking for the same savior. They couldn't be more different, each with their own struggles, yet their desire of their heart was looking forward to the day when the Messiah would set everything right. When was the last time we let race come between the bigger picture that we both need the same savior? We both need the same Savior. Verse 27. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? I can imagine. It's like, hey, why is he talking to her? I don't know. You ask him. I ain't asking him. I'm not. Could you imagine as they're walking up like, Jesus is alone with a Samaritan. It's a woman, right? I, I, I'm not going there. So the woman left her water jar and went away to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
They went out of the town and were coming to him. You gotta see this. It is so powerful. Here's the picture. The disciples follow Jesus to the well. They leave him there to go get some food. They come back and he's talking with the Samaritan woman. She's crying. She's excited. She leaves her water pot and runs away back into town. Now get this. The very people she's trying to avoid that remind her constantly of her sin, she's now boldly going and sharing with them about the encounter that she's had. Her life is changed. She's not the same woman that left that town. She's going back completely different with a completely different focus, knowing somebody different that she didn't know before and seeing herself in a completely different light. How many men do you think she's been with? How many men? How many men in her life do you think she's tried to hide or be secret about? How many men has she tried to forget Not this man. No, this is a man I'm proud of. This is a man you got to meet. This is a man that has set me free from my shame. She says, come see a man that knows me for who I am and loves me anyway. Come see. You didn't know there was a Cajun in Samaria, did you? Come see. Come see. And as this is happening, and the people are starting to flood out of the city to make their way up to the well to see Jesus, here's the conversation that he has with his disciples, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food, in other words, he's saying, what sustains me is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Let me help you. He's not pointing to a field. He's pointing to a community coming out to see him. He's not pointing to a cane field, New Iberia. He's pointing to our community saying, the harvest is here. It is ripe and we're ready. And you got to understand this picture. They're thinking he's talking about one thing and Jesus is talking about something totally different. The context here is he's saying, look, lift up. The people are coming. This is what we're here to do not to go from one place to another and pick up some food along the way. I have food that sustains me, and unless I'm doing the thing that I've been called to do, I'm not satisfied. And he's trying to teach them, unless you're doing the thing that God has called you to do, you won't be satisfied either. The only person needing sustenance is not the woman at the well. It's the disciples trying to learn why it is that Jesus came and what he's trying to get us to do and what we're trying to accomplish the work of the Father while he's here. And I love this story for just a few reasons and I want to share them with you. Isaac, you can come help me out. You may find yourself in a hole. You may find yourself in the deepest, darkest place of your entire life, but you don't have to stay there. You may think that your sin has disqualified you from being used by God. Listen to me, it won't. And you may be going to great lengths 
to avoid addressing the sin and shame and guilt in your life. But Jesus is not going out of his way to avoid you. Jesus is going straight for you right where you are. You may think, well, I'm the one that showed up to church today. And I'm telling you, Jesus has a plan to meet you. Your mess is not too messy for Jesus. She's, yeah. But here's this lady. And she's been a poor steward of her thirst. A thirst that only Jesus could satisfy. Jeremiah speaks of going back to a broken, leaking well. A place that promises it will satisfy, but it never does. A place that promises to fill you, but leaves you empty. All of us have places like that in our lives, don't we? We keep trying to drink from them. Oh, it'll be different this time. Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, talks about this concept of vanity. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Here's the word picture there. It's taking a bucket and lowering it into a well to get water. And then all the work it takes to bring it back up and the bucket's empty. It's vanity. All that effort and you're not satisfied. All of that effort and you're still despondent. All of that effort and it's empty. Jesus has a different way. Not physical water, but living water. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me for just a second. I want you to listen to my voice. We see a little bit of ourselves in this woman because by nature we're all allergic to grace. We resist it. We get evasive. And when given an opportunity to deal with her sin, she changes the subject to discuss differences in worship. And in a way, that's exactly what Jesus was talking to her and to us about today. Listen, church, it's always about our worship. Who's getting your focus? Who's getting your attention? Who's getting your adoration that rightly belongs to Jesus? Is it wealth? Is it the pursuit of money and the dollars and the things that that we can buy with our lives? Is is that what's getting our focus and our attention? Is it it relationships, the the ones that we think are going to finally make us whole? We can worship those things when we give them our adoration. It may be activities or sports. It may be even something as seemingly innocent as religion where we think if I'll just do more or do enough or not do, that somehow I'll be full. And we go back time and time and time again, and it's empty, it's vanity. How about you? What or who has been getting your worship? Jesus simply shows her that apart from him, she would remain empty. She would remain thirsty. Nothing and no one else will satisfy but him. And I got to ask you, church, are there areas in your life that aren't satisfied? Her only response, listen to this, her only response when confronted with her sin, her only response 
when confronted with his grace, when confronted with her hopelessness, when confronted with his promise was this, give me that water. Give me that water. There's more to this story. There's more to this story today. And and here's what we know. The gospel is personal, but it isn't private, is it? Not at all. And here's the best part of her story isn't how she gets saved. It's what she does once that she is. It's what she does once that she is. John chapter four, verse 39. I wanna show you the rest of the story. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Look at this. And many more believed because of his word. No longer hers, but his. And then John 4, 42 tells us this. They got to a place where they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Think about the first time you came to church. You didn't know, you didn't believe. Somebody told you, you saw somebody, you saw it in somebody else and they they said, hey, would you like to come with me or you should come. And initially you came based on their word. And because you came, eventually you got to the point where you started to believe based on his word. The gospel is personal, but it isn't private. And I wanna ask you to do what she did. Go invite others to come see this man. Go invite others to come see Jesus at Easter this year. Put on your best Cajun accent and say, come see, come see. Just come see. And I know you think you know what you need, but you need to come see. And before you think you can't, let me show you a very practical way from the same story that you can invite others to church or a church event like your Easter explosion at Weston Park. Number one, people are more open and honest when they're alone. They are. Jesus waited till he was one-on-one. He had a personal conversation with this woman. He didn't put her on the spot in front of others or in front of a crowd. He asked her one-on-one. Number two, speak about the physical before you speak about the spiritual. Jesus started the conversation talking about water, something she knew about, something that she'd be comfortable with in the middle of this, something they could start to or start to carry the conversation he didn't just jump in there and say, hey, tell me about that man you're living with that isn't your husband and the five others that came before you. He didn't, did he? He built a rapport. He built some trust. And number three, eventually you'll have to swing to the spiritual by bringing God into the conversation. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, God, we weren't, we weren't talking about God. We were talking about water. How is, how is this? I love the phrase. I use this often. Hey, do you have a church background? find out a lot about a person just by asking them that question. Do you have a church background? Did you grow up in church? Here's the fourth thing. Speak about yourself. Tell your story. Now you and I obviously can't stand at a well with a woman and say, I'm the Messiah, right? But you can tell how Jesus has changed your life. 
You can tell them about how things weren't going the way you hoped they would. And you came across a man who knew everything about you and loved you still. How Jesus has changed you and helped you since you started following him. Your story makes Jesus relatable to people. Your story. Not the story of the person next to you. Your story, what God has done in your life. God has given you everything you need to invite somebody into a relationship with Jesus. He's done it in your life. And then number five, share your heart for them and invite them to come with you. Come see. Listen, we can ride together. I'll meet you in the parking lot. We can sit together. Our kids can play together. Here's what I need you to communicate in that moment. You don't have to take this step alone. I'll come with you. Come see I'm going to leave you with this one thought. And if you really believe what you believe, then why wouldn't you share that with others? If you really believe that heaven and hell are real places and people still go there, and that apart from a relationship with Jesus that reconciles you to the Father, cleanses you from your sin, you will spend eternity in the only place left And that's in hell. If you really believe that, why would you not invite somebody? Why would you not tell them? Every time I think about this, I'm reminded of a video that I watched once. Many of you know Penn and Teller, the illusionists, the entertainers, the comedians. I think we've got a picture of them we we can show you. Years ago, Penn Gillette, the guy with the long hair that does the talking, um, he has uh, an interaction with a man who made an invitation. And he jumped on the internet and he told this story. And I want you to watch, watch this for the next few minutes. And I want you to listen for these steps that I just told you. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show. And at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we... Uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the, um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, you know, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and... Uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. And he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. But he said nice stuff. And then he said, "I brought this for you." And he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, 
this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. I mean, he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like your show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man, and uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man... That was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. It was a good man that gave me that book. I don't think there's anything I can add to that. Will you do that? Here's my prayer for you. That even now while I'm talking, God has put on your mind and on your heart, maybe it's just one person, just one, but you'll take a moment. Easter's just a few weeks away. Invite him to the explosion that we're having out at Weston Park, a great first step. Come with him, amen? Can y'all do that? Can, y'all, can we invite some people to church? It's a lot more serious than a truck bearing down on them. <laughs>